Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impact these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. Before we get started, if you are enjoying this podcast, please be sure to like, subscribe, leave us a five-star review. Any support definitely helps our show. Um, all right. Well, today we are going to be diving into the topic of indoor and outdoor versus outdoor and the modern marijuana. And who better to have on as our guest but the leading cannabis horticulture expert, educator, and legalization activist, the guru of ganja. Please welcome Dr. Ed Rosenthal. It's a pleasure to bring with you. And always, I'm pleased to welcome back my esteemed colleague, the Chief Knowledge Officer at New Frontier Data, Mr. John Kagia. Uh, delighted to be back, Heather. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, we before we jump into the articles, Ed, you have made such a name for yourself in the industry. Um, you co-founded High, High Times Magazine. You've written over a dozen books on cultivation and social policy and the founder of many successful organizations. Take us back. Why cannabis? What drew you into it? I know you've been in this industry for so long. Well, it was very personal. Um, I met cannabis in college and uh, from the very first time that I used it, uh, I knew that this was going to be an ally of mine in much the same way that uh, uh, the shaman in Carlos Castaneda's book had an ally. And I knew that this was going to be a long-term relationship. I love that. I feel like John and I have been talking more and more about how it, it usually takes a, you know, a personal story or a personal something to draw you in that yes. makes it very real for you. Yes. Yes. And what, you know, I was in the Yippies, which uh, if you saw the trial of the Chicago seven, that was the group involved in that. And it lasted uh, for many years after it for another uh, 20, 20 years or longer. And uh, part of that group was uh, uh, that feeling, uh, uh, it said, when, when freedom is outlawed, only outlaws will be free. And after the war, uh, many of the hippies noticed that cannabis had become a significant part of their lives. And so that was part of the, I was part of that movement and sort of drifted into that. And uh, at the same time, we thought that when a certain percentage of people start using cannabis, that there would be a significant change within American society. And if you look, so many of the uh, social norms that are that we have today are hippie, yippie-induced. Like, I'll just give you a few social ones: uh, living together before marriage and 50 years ago, that whole, the whole question of virginity before marriage was an issue. And another one was uh, enjoying your life, having certain goals, uh, rather than trying, just trying to conform to society. So some of those uh, things which are normative now were uh, those social uh, aspects were uh, were hippie, yippie type things. One other thing is, you know, America is mo the most aggressive country in the world, but uh, it's been in more wars. It's never, there's never been a day in since 
the start of the American Revolution when there hasn't been a military action by the U.S. government. So it's the most aggressive government in the world. But if you look at it, American people always vote for peace. Wilson's campaign in 1916, Wilson campaigned, he kept us out of war. And then in 1917, right after the election, he brought the U.S. into war. Uh, uh, then uh, Bush was, was going to be the education president, and he educated people about how to go to war in Iraq and so on. And uh, people, uh, the American people, it's not the American people, but the government constantly betrays the American people's uh, desire for peace. So we thought that cannabis, when enough people use cannabis, they'd start thinking outside the box, box in much the same way that uh, Aldous Huxley talked about. Uh, we're taught uh, how to look at uh, sets and settings in a particular way, and we're always thinking inside the box, and that psychedelics break the box, so thoughts get through to consciousness that would normally be not be uh, not get there. And so we thought that that as a mild psychedelic, this would change America's opinions. Well, we've certainly come a pretty far way. I mean, how, what would you tell yourself, your your younger self? Do you think that they would believe how far we've come, or do you think that we? Do you think that we haven't come far enough in these past 40, 30 years? We've been up, up until the Biden administration, we've been going backwards since Reagan for 50 years in terms of the government and in terms of the government's relationship with its uh, citizens. And so uh, uh, Biden's approach is a welcome, is, is certainly welcome. No, I, I think that, that the... Uh, that society has advanced, but that the government hasn't. That, that there are different social norms in society. For instance, uh, uh, the acceptance of uh, uh, non-binary relationships uh, and of uh, people's right to, uh, to be themselves however they want to be. Those things have been recognized by society. I mean, they're they're all over TV. People don't think twice about it. People go to gay marriages. And that, even 50 or 60 years ago, that was not normative in the United States. So, uh, so society has changed, but it hasn't been represented in government. Yeah, and actually just pick up on, on your question, Heather, which is, so, so um, compelling view on, on the nature of the government's social um, dynamic, but specifically around cannabis, how do you feel about where the country is now relative to where we were uh, 30 or 40 years ago? Do you think that um, the, the evolution of the industry as we have seen it um, kind of aligns with what you had been hoping for when you began your activism uh, all those years ago? Well, I had a different opinion all along from what most of society thought, and that is this. First of all, you know, with legalization, if you're outside of the legal market, then you don't have restrictions. It's a free market. It's a totally free market. It's a totally free capitalistic market where no one individual or no one organization can affect the market. So that you know that that there's a lot of free competition. Quality rules out. You know, 
cannabis is the exact opposite of money. You know, bad money drives good money out of circulation. You've heard that. But good marijuana drives bad marijuana out of circulation. So with that, we have we had uh, this capitalistic market that recognized um, uh, political and economic risk, and so that these high prices main high prices were maintained because there was a short supply. So it was easy for people within the culture to earn a living doing that. And since legalization, there's been a transfer of wealth from the general marijuana community upwards to, you know, a more capitalistic, um, less competitive culture where uh, massive companies, billion, billion dollar companies are in the market competing. But I, I think that, and I think that the reason that they can compete is only because of government regulations and if you had if there were more government regulations like there are in uh, Oklahoma where 2500 isn't that ironic Oklahoma but $2500 and and a lease and you can get a you can get a license and so if there was open competition and anybody could get into the market meeting uh health regulations and zoning regulations and things if if it was just licensable then we'd have a much different situation i don't think this is a good situation but i do look forward eventually to the tomato model so that in the tomato model you have organizations of all different sizes from big international corporations to local gardeners supplying a few restaurants all in the tomato market and all of them can earn a living in that market but in the United States, more tomatoes are grown by home growers than all of the commercial, commercially, uh, so, you know, sold tomatoes. So uh, that's what I look forward to. And it's very important that people should be allowed to grow their own. And that's the most important thing. Whatever happens to the market, people should have the right. And I don't think it's a privilege. I think it's a right to grow your own food and people have the right to grow their own euphorians. It's so interesting. Um, it takes me back when I like years ago when I was a realtor in DC, when it was not legal in DC, that I remember I had to sell a house in Petworth and she was living, this one young woman was living with her parents and her dad was growing cannabis all over the backyard. And as I'm trying to show the house to people, I'm like, do you know that your, do you know that your dad's growing marijuana in the backyard? And he had this very much the same take. He's like, I should be able to grow what I want in my own property in my backyard. Yeah. Um, but it was just a very, you know, different take because she was a very conservative younger person and her, her parents were very, um, the opposite. So it was well, great. You know, the, the thing is that, um, you know, robbers, you know, know that they shouldn't rob. Killers know that they shouldn't kill. You know, people who break the law in general know that they're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. But try to tell a marijuana user that using marijuana is wrong or growing it is wrong. They're not hurting anybody in society. And yet they were considered dangers and you know marijuana was considered the most dangerous drug and uh, i'll tell you how they got to that opinion 
So let's say, let's say heroin has a danger of 100, right? And then we're just going to put an arbitrary number on it. It has a danger of 100. And they say, well, there are 5 million people using it. So we'll take that 100 times the 5 million people using it. And then they say, well, marijuana has a danger of, let's say, two. But there are 100 million people using it. So if you look at the numbers, marijuana becomes more dangerous because there are more people using it, even though it's not really a dangerous drug. And that is what the drug war was based on. And it was also based on easy pickings for the police, you know, getting society riled up, using uh, Jim Crow and racial stereotypes, hippie stereotypes. You know, and after Nixon, you would be able to say, would you rather have a dirty hippie or a clean thief living next to you? Well, good to know. Thank you. Well, we'll get into our headlines quickly. Um, Green Entrepreneur reported, it's time to disrupt our market obsession with THC. So modern cannabis is a product of market forces. As an illicit commodity, cultivators have had an incentive to prioritize THC content and produce more potent flour. Now in the legal market, there's an opportunity to explore the interaction between various cannabinoids, terpenes, and further understand impact of cannabis genetics on consumer products. So Ed, I'll start with you. Many states start by legalizing cannabis for medical reasons. How important is a range of cannabis genetics for addressing disparate medical needs? Incredibly important because there are so many different cannabinoids and also so many different combinations of terpenes that, uh, you know, the uh, entourage effect that people like Russo have been proponents of and uh, also many of the... uh, Israeli scientists, and we already know that. We already knew this because, you know, experientially, we knew that different cannabis had different effects on you. This one will put you to sleep. This one makes you happy. This one's an antidepressant. This one makes you contemplative. This one, you want to use this one if you're going to clean the house, you know. So we, so. Sign me up for that one. (laughs) (laughs) so uh in an informal way cannabis users already knew what scientists are verifying so Mm -hmm. it is it's terribly important and as we get down to some of these rare cannabinoids and get to be able to either synthesize them or uh uh, encourage their um their production uh naturally we're going to find even more and I think that, uh, for instance, THCV, which uh, is not um, psychoactive, uh, we we might find that that is a terrific um, a diet aid, a natural diet aid that doesn't wouldn't have the side effects that all of these uh, diet pills have. It's not amphetamine. Yeah, and it doesn't give you the munchies, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the exact opposite. It, it sates you. Uh, I like the sound of that. I just yeah. had a baby recently, so I could use some of that. Uh, John, <laughs> anything to add to that? Yeah, just a quick point, building off Ed's point about THCV, which you know some have said it's probably going to end up being the third most, it has the potential to be the third most valuable cannabinoid after THC and CBD, just because of its appetite suppressing uh, uh, potential. 
Um, uh, the early studies seem to suggest that it's really effective without some of the side effects. Now, depending on how it's formulated, you know, the, the sort of entourage effect that it's paired with, um, uh, there's a little more study that needs to be done to ensure that that you aren't experience any other negative potential side effects with that uh, high use doses of that specific cannabinoid. Um, but to me, it's a perfect illustration of how much potential wealth of application there is within this spectrum of the compounds in cannabis. And I think uh, to, to the question around the role that chasing the highest THC compound, uh, the role that that has played, I, I think the, the challenge has been, it's meant that there's been so much focus on getting higher and higher in terms of the THC levels, uh, that it, I think it's come at, somewhat at the expense of uh, going broader and wider and understanding how this full spectrum of, of uh, cannabinoids and other compounds in cannabis can be used to stimulate uh, the spectrum of events that, or the spe spectrum of effects and experiences uh, that Ed alluded to, whether it is cleaning the house, sleeping, not wanting to eat, uh, or, or suppressing the appetite, exercising, um, lovemaking, making music, uh, etc. Um, there's there's a huge amount of innovation and and I think science still to be done along that continuum of experiences, um, and I don't think that it needs to be tethered to getting higher and higher levels of THC specifically. Well, it, it depends what people are looking for, and uh, uh, cannabis just followed the market, so mm -hmm. people wanted to get higher and higher. So that you know, uh, so breeders bred towards that. Now breeders are breeding towards other things, so because the market desires it, and in one way or another, and so I think that that's really important. That also that scientists follow the market and see what's important to people as well, as well as doing the scientific research that might be involved in cannabis as a medicine or cannabis as a, a behavior changes, such as we were talking about THCV. But there's not only uh, there's not only the cannabinoids, but you know herbalism and and aromatherapy were based basically on the terpenes and the terpenoids, and so that um, that you have that entourage effect between the cannabinoids and the terp and the terpenes. So the terpenes have a profound effect as well, and we shouldn't forget that. And uh, you know, in a way, terpenes have a head start because of all the research that's been done in aromatherapy regarding their effect on people. So when you combine that with the, with, with the cannabinoids, you could get even a more potent medicines. Ed, what do you think could be done to preserve the genetic diversity of cannabis flower in the legal markets? Well, it's very, you know, I was, uh, I went to Morocco 30 years ago. And at the time, the plants in Morocco looked a lot like uh, corn plants. They, they each had one stem. By, by the beginning of September, most of the plants had been harvested. Most of the cannabis is grown in one state in Morocco called Katama. And by, by September 1st, almost all of it's, as I said, almost all of it's harvested. Then... I, I came, went back there two, uh, about two years ago. It, the uh, cannabis there had changed because uh, Europeans who came to Morocco uh, uh, to buy hash 
would leave uh, Europeans, you know, the European and American seeds with the uh, with the farmers. And since there's open pollination there, the entire uh, country's cannabis has changed to be a hybrid between the land races that were there for hundreds of years, perhaps, and the new uh, these new varieties. So that in um, preserving diversity, it's really important that we go to countries um, that uh, there are already some collections, like for, for instance, there are two seed companies that I know of, I'm sure there are others, but one is called the Real Seed Company. I have no connections with these companies, but one is called the Real Seed Company and the other is called Ace Seeds. And they, specialize in land races and preserving land races. So that's one thing. And then, for instance, in Jamaica, people were looking for the original Jamaican. Well, it's not to be found in Jamaica. In Jamaica, It's to be found in seed collections in people's freezers and refrigerators and among certain uh, seed companies such as Sensi Seeds and other seed, perhaps greenhouse seeds. And those were all gathered before there was that interaction between uh, uh, West, the uh, modern seeds and the land races. On the other hand, another way to go is to look at where cannabis originated, and that would be in the uh, Himalayan uh, foothills. Now, China claims that it's in that their Western portion and uh, it, that that those uh, Himalayan foothills extend for about a couple of fifteen hundred miles or so, but that's where you would find the most diversity because you find the most diversity where uh, where the original population is. For instance, if, when people look, look for solutions to potato problems, they go to Peru to look at all of the uh, wild potatoes and examine those for, for possible solutions to, for instance, a, a uh, mold or something like that. And so you'll find the most diversity in, in those countries. And that would be uh, India, Bhutan, China, Afghanistan, just all along the, that foothill area. So it's very important that, that seed collections be made. And right now, exactly the opposite is happening in Bhutan, where there's an eradication campaign. So, so uh, it's important to get there and get those seeds, get them into collections so that uh, they can be used in the future. That's so interesting. John, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add, and I'm totally with, agree with Ed on the idea of seed preservation at a time that this market is expanding globally as quickly as it is. Um, but, but I think there's also a role that consumers can play here and consumer education specifically, um, so that there's, consumers are, one, aware of and understand the, the nuanced differences in the different types of genetics out there, which then provides incentives for growers to produce um, uh, more diverse types of, of crops rather than everybody racing to produce uh, uh, Girl Scout cookies because it's the hardest thing on the market and that ends up taking up you know, 30, 40% of, of what's being grown. 
you know, the, 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 the uh, cannabis cultivator community, the cannabis grow community, uh, is going to have to have incentive to, to reach deep into these uh, freezers and fridges to, to propagate these genetics that are less commonly found and which consumers may, may be less aware of. And, and so there's, I think, opportunity there to, uh, in addition to producing them and, and educating consumers on the different effects, the different benefits, the different experiences of, of um, uh, these different genetics. Well, I, I think um, some of your uh, fears there or hopes uh, or aspirations um, are really being met. If you think about it, you know, cannabis is uh, much easier to breed than, let's say, tomatoes, uh, because tomatoes have what's called the perfect flower in that they have the male and the female is represented on each flower. So in order to to breed, you have to go in with a set of pincers and take off one of the, you know, remove one of the sexes and then gather pollen. And, you know, it's it's crazy. And cannabis is one, maybe one of the 5% of angiosperms that have separate male and female plants. So it's really easy to breed them. You, you could see what I mean if you look at a lily, by the way, or an amaryllis or any any uh, uh, plant flower like that, and you'll see both uh, the stamen and the stigma on the same flower. And so it you know you have to separate them. But with cannabis, you you can just separate the plants, and then you, it makes for easy easy. Um, uh, easier breeding because you have the segregation and you 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 just combine the ones that you like and for that reason cannabis is the most bred plant in the world. You don't hear of people breeding begonias or wheat or corn. No, you don't hear people saying, "Oh yeah, I just developed a new uh, a new tomato plant." You know, you don't hear that, right? But you know that once people start growing cannabis, there's a natural inclination to try to combine the varieties and find different different uh, combinations. And that's exactly how you got things like the cookies that you were talking about, or White Widow previously, or any of any of the uh, well-known varieties. And for every well-known variety, there are hundreds and hundreds of home breeders. And I think that it's one of the few plants that, you know, uh, that backyard gardeners will breed. You don't hear people breeding too many other backyard plants. I mean, there are only a few crazy people who would start breeding amaryllis or something like that. But everybody wants to get their hand in breeding. So, so I think that you are, um, uh, so, and I think that when people breed, they're breeding because they, they, they're choosing characteristics that they particularly appreciate. What mm -hmm. if I took those cookies and bred it against this plant here, fire water, and then we'll get this special combination. And that's how all, all of these, this is being done. So it's, in a way, it's a lot like astronomy. There's a lot of research done by uh, amateurs. Well, it goes to show you just how sophisticated the you know cannabis consumer or home grower is becoming. Just being able to mix and match their own 
little concoction rather than just taking whatever's available. <laughs> right. And and if you look and look at how many thousands of seed, literally thousands of seed companies there are, and you know you m multiply those seed companies times the number of varieties that they have, so that that both the home, you know, both the uh, the gardener or farmer have access to an incredible already a, an incredible array of uh, cannabis with incredible characteristics, including now talking about the different cannabinoids and the different terpenes. And for instance, in California, when you go into a dispensary, they, they don't only list the uh, cannabinoids, but they list the terpenes. So uh, both consumers and breeders have an incredible array to choose from. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to our next article on High Times, they reported growers in the Emerald Triangle are facing a potential extinction event. So some California cultivators are getting concerned about recent drop in wholesale prices for outdoor cannabis. Uh, last year, prices slumped between 1200 to 1600 per pound to 18, uh, 800 to 1000 per pound. Um, so the previous year's grow left a market surplus, which has been too much for the legal market. So, Ed, when it comes to growing cannabis, what are some of the different challenges facing California's indoor and outdoor cultivators? The uh, founder and uh, the founder of the uh, Emerald Cup and I uh, had uh, this uh, disagreement about looking into the future. And I said that when cannabis becomes legal, Humboldt will become Ill irrelevant. And all those people were talking about, you know, the the soil and the terrar and all of those things. And this is going to become an appellation like they have in wine and all that. And they're doing all of that. But the simple fact is that people did not move to Humboldt because of the wonderful fertile soil or the agricultural land. They moved there because it was hard for the uh, government to suppress uh, cultivation. It was the Afghanistan of uh, cannabis because it was rugged terrain. You could you couldn't you, there was a good a, a favorable chance of succeeding in your cultivation. But as soon as marijuana became legal it became obvious that that was not agricultural land. If you wanted agricultural land, you would go down to the Central Valley where you had plenty of sun and uh, fertile farming soil or, it, or go to into greenhouses such as in Redmond, Redmond Washington, or where that used to be a big shipping area. So there were these giant warehouses that people could convert into grows or greenhouses. And then um, and then all of those uh, greenhouses in Southern California and in Half Moon Bay, California, near the Bay Area. So it became apparent that Humboldt was not an agricultural area. And um, I guess uh, I won the argument with the, with the Emerald Cup founder because his next cup is going to be held in Southern California. 
You know, I was just at a conference. We were talking about Humboldt and he said he was talking about, like you said, the land there. And he said, you know, if something were to happen to cannabis, they couldn't just flip a switch and start, you know, growing tomatoes. They don't have the land for it. It's, you know, strictly really only for cannabis. John, you've spent a good amount of time in Humboldt County. And what's your take on that? Economics were always going to be difficult in, in Humboldt, um, particularly as you started seeing larger scale, kind of uh, more technically sophisticated in terms of infrastructure uh, facilities being built closer to the markets where these products were going to be be sold. Um, you know, just even the logistics of getting cannabis out from a grow deep in the, uh, in the mountains of Humboldt uh, down to a place like L.A., the, the economics there are very, very different than uh, if you were in the Central Valley or points further south. It's, it's part of the reason we've seen this explosion in licensing in places like Santa Barbara, um, uh, which is right, 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 right by uh, Los Angeles. Um, the, the one thing which I do think Humboldt has an opportunity to preserve at least part of the cannabis community there is one, just the level of community expertise in terms of how to grow cannabis. And there's a phenomenally kind of committed community there. Um, and then two is building a broader experience beyond just the production of cannabis there. So I think integrating tourism, farm tours, getting folks uh, out into uh, beyond the Redwood Curtain, um, you know, it's a beautiful part of the country. I think there's a lot of folks who um, would be compelled to, to travel up there to, to combine, um, you know, the exploration of, of Redwood, count, uh, Redwood country, country um, with you know, whether it's cannabis farm tours or the cannabis-based experiences. Um, but I agree with Ed. It's, you know, the, the in terms of the, emerging um, large-scale commercialization of cannabis cultivation. Um, there may be a few producers on at scale who emerge out in Humboldt County, but most are going to go to places where um, it's more convenient, there's better infrastructure, the logistics are easier to deal with. Um, so really the, this idea of, of leveraging the Humboldt brand, I think is going to be um, perhaps one way that they can salvage this community. I'm not as op optimistic as you are about that. Why would I go to Humboldt, Humboldt and travel six hours from the Bay Area when I could go to Sonoma and go to what was formerly a winery and see all of this beautiful ca cannabis within a spa and have a hot tub at night? I, I don't disagree. And I think there's going to be some phenomenal so, cannabis. So there's, there's, no, there's no chance of tourism. You'd have to be You'd have to be, want to be punishing yourself to drive six hours to go to Humboldt when you could go to Sonoma or Napa, and all of those are eventually going to become big cannabis areas. So where would you rather be? Where one of these wineries was or this rugged, like, log cabin or something in Humboldt? I, don't, I, don't, I just don't see it. It doesn't have the facilities. It doesn't have the restaurants. You know, um, if you're if you're traveling from uh, from other parts of the country and you have five days, that's a, going up to Humboldt becomes too big a deal, too big a portion of your of your uh, trap, you know, vacation time. So I don't really see that as as a big thing. I mean, it might work with a few people, and also the pot just isn't as good because it doesn't get as much UV light. And I, I, 
for all their expertise. You know why Humboldt Pod is renowned for the rest of the country? It, uh, it's, a, it's, a long, it's a little bit of an explanation. Well, you go, like if you go to, for instance, if you go to Mexico and you try and buy some of the be some beautiful strawberries at a market, you won't find them. You get the runts, you get the ones that aren't, you know, that don't make it to international packaging. And the, the beautiful stuff, you buy that in California or in Massachusetts or anywhere in the country because it all gets exported. Well, cannabis is the exact opposite in terms of the best cannabis stays in California. So the best cannabis was not humble. The best cannabis was the indoor grown and stuff grown in other areas. For instance, in, um, in um, the Northern Bay area, in, in the Central Valley, though, that was the best cannabis or grown indoors. So that meant that there was an excess of Humboldt material. So what happened to it? It wound up in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. That was the export material, California's export material, because the best stuff stayed in California. So people, I'd go to New York and people would say, oh, I have this Humboldt material, you know, and I, then I'd pull out some real California stuff and people would much rather smoke that than their Humboldt material. I, I wasn't selling it. I'm just talking about enjoying it with people. Like I'm not, I'm, you We're know. not going to rat you out, Ed. Don't worry. No, no, I'm not. I mean, I was never, uh, I didn't, I never liked, uh, dealing wasn't part of my life. It, education was. So anyway, the reason Humboldt got a reputation is because its stuff was better than the st other stuff they got in New York, but it wasn't the best California. So I don't see hope there either because the Humboldt market was an export market. And uh, now that New York and all these other places are going to be legal, Virginia, New York, all over the country, uh, where are they going to export it to? Actually, that leads me pretty much, I mean, because we're almost out of time to my last question. What are your predictions about the next few years of like what the cannabis industry is going to look like? It all depends what the Democrats do. That's what it's about. It's about whether this is another roundabout answer, but the Democrats lost the election a number of times because of cannabis. They lost the elections when Gore, who used cannabis and used to go to Grateful Dead concerts with his wife, Tipper, when they said that, when he said that cannabis had no medical value, he knew better than that. And that's what cost him the election. And then when Hillary never said cannabis during the whole time that she was running for, for office for president, if she had said, I think that we should see whether cannabis has medical value or we should let states legalize medical cannabis. If she had done that, she would have lost no votes, but she would have gained votes and she would have won the election. So I hope the Democrats don't flub it again. You know, they, if they, uh, cannabis is the Democrats' national, natural ally. And if they legalize it, they win the election. If they call for legalization, they win the election. So I, 
I just hope that they uh, that they see that. But that is the. Um, it all depends on that whether they recognize that cannabis is their ally, not their enemy. But you know, you know the problem with politicians and cannabis. First of all, think about this: Would you rather spend uh, an evening with uh, some good cannabis or with uh, a stuffy politician? You know, just think of that on a personal level. <laughs> and then the reason, uh, you know. Uh, you know uh, where the where the the uh, wicked witch says who's the fairest of them all. So uh, politicians hate cannabis because it's more popular than any politician. You look at the votes. You know uh, the votes for legalization. They're lopsided as compared with uh, with uh, with the po- political votes. But for instance. In Oklahoma, conservative state, it won by 70%. What politician wins by 70%? As I said, cannabis is more popular than any politician, and they just hate it because, you know, they're all ego deficient and they, they, need, um, they need reassurance. And being, being uh, less popular than a plant, you know, they think they're pansies or something. Well, especially when they try so hard to be likable, but yeah. cannabis is more likable. <laughs> exactly. You hit it. Without even trying. <laughs> oh, and you know, uh, something that we didn't get into, but I, I want to, there, the, there was a survey done and um, I forget where it was from, but it was, uh, but they said, they asked people, why do they grow cannabis? And most people said, I like growing it. And that's another thing that, Using cannabis may not be addictive, but growing it is. All right. Yeah. Can I have to show you one thing before I go? Okay, go, go. This is my new book coming out, Marijuana, the Cannabis Growers Handbook. And I did it in collaboration with Dr. Rob Flannery, who has a PhD in uh, plant biology and also runs Dr. Rob Farms, as well as dozens of other uh, researchers, uh, uh, university professors. Uh, we have original research that will be peer reviewed before before long. So it's easy. Where can people find your book? Well, uh, they can get it on Amazon. They can get it directly from edrosenthal.com, and it's coming out in about two weeks. So, awesome. uh, so we're very excited. Uh, um, it, it's it's beyond anything that. Uh, we've done before and uh with the collaboration you know can the the knowledge about cannabis cultivation and about cannabis has grown so much that that there's it's the industry is so segmented that we took experts from each area whether it's hvac or nutrition just every area and uh including breeding and we uh, we worked with with all of these people. It's it's quite a collaboration. And the thing about it is that we go delve deeply, but we avoid jargon. So it's not something that people say, you know, I'm reading this and I know it's English, but I don't understand it. I mean, I'm sure that that happens to me sometimes. I'm saying, what what is this? No, we keep it, we kept it so that it's very understandable. And at the end of it. 
if you go through the whole thing, and you don't have to go through this whole thing, but if you do, you'll have a, a college education in in um, in cannabis. And if you just want to use it to grow six plants, you can do that too. So it's it, it's very accessible. Well, Ed, this is certainly timely because for whatever reason, I've been hearing home grow come up everywhere I look. So. Um, I think a lot of people's interest are Pete. So you guys go to edresmazala.com or Amazon to get his book. And thank you so, so much for your time. We so appreciate it. Mr. Kagia, always a pleasure seeing you on camera. Um, And thank you all for joining us at Canna Week. Please, again, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And I'm your host, Heather Wickland, and I will see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.